Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. The new year is off and running, and so am I, ready to give you another year of amazing interviews with amazing women from across the country. What She Said is for you. So before we jump in today, I just want to remind those listening that I want to hear from you. Reach out to me on social media, on my website, or by email to let me know what you want to hear more about and who you want to hear more from this year. And with that, here's what's coming up on today's show. Michelle Nadon is a highly regarded recruitment specialist who has provided talent development and career guidance to the Canadian media and entertainment sectors for two decades. Her company, Media Intelligence, links today's businesses with top talent through innovative talent acquisition and recruitment models and cutting-edge career enrichment programs. She joins me today to share some tips for making a career shift in 2023. How much do you know about your Facebook friends? Amy Daughters began writing handwritten letters to an old camp friend, Dana, when she learned her son was sick with cancer. After his death, the two women continued to correspond through the mail. This rich, meaningful experience led Amy to write handwritten letters to all 580 of her Facebook friends, and as it turns out, there were real, extraordinary individuals living very real lives behind each social media profile. Amy joins me to share the story. Ann Brody is back with entertainment for 2023, and this week we take a look at a man called Otto, starring everyone's favorite Hollywood actor Tom Hanks, plus a look at Hold Me Tight, a psychological montage of a woman's moments scattered across time and place, and the case against Cosby with Canadian athlete and hero Andrea Constand, a towering figure in the Me Too movement. Women are over 50 are having a moment, and we're here for it at what she said. Sherilyn Starkey is an award-winning digital communications consultant with more than 20 years experience working with private and public sector clients in Canada, Britain, and the USA. Her new podcast, 50 Women Over 50, is a passion project in which she is interviewing women past their 50th birthday to learn how they see the world, what lessons they've learned, and what advice they have for us all. Allie Payne kicks off the first of 12 interviews this year about the parent-teen relationship, and this week we look at a hot-button issue for many parents, how to best support and motivate teenagers who are struggling academically. It's natural for parents and guardians to want their teens to succeed in school, and grades can be an important measure of progress, but sometimes despite our best efforts, teens may struggle with their grades. Allie jumps in with some advice. Finally, the last few weeks have seen some crazy changes with the advancement of artificial intelligence, specifically with ChatGPT. What does this mean for people who make a living in writing? Kate Wallace is a copywriter, scriptwriter, and brand storytelling consultant. Her custom copy helps her clients capture the attention of target audiences and drive business impacts. A national award-winning journalist, Kate joins me to share her thoughts on the latest development in artificial intelligence and what it means for those with a career in writing. It's another full week at what she said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. I could recognize I hold on to you. 
The start of a new year can feel like a fresh start, providing an opportunity to set goals and make positive changes in our lives. For many, thoughts of changing jobs or careers is top of mind. My first guest today is a highly regarded recruitment specialist who has provided talent development and career guidance to the Canadian media and entertainment sectors for two decades. Michelle Nadon's company, MediaIntelligence.ca, links today's businesses with top talent through innovative talent acquisition and recruitment models and cutting-edge career enrichment programs. She joins me today to share some tips for making a career shift in 2023. Welcome to What She Said, Michelle. Hi, good morning. So great to be here. Uh, you know, it's funny, I've been self-employed for so long that I don't even know if I would know what to do when it came to looking for a job right now. And I imagine that in today's day and age, things have changed a lot. Things have radically changed, um, especially since COVID-19 hit. Uh, so that's why I took advantage of the opportunity about a year and a half ago to put out a, a second edition of my book, Careers AF that focuses specifically on the post-pandemic um, best practices. Whether you're doing business development with your own gig or whether you're actually out there seeking a job, the tactics that you use will be the very same for both applications. You just need to use different marketing tools. That's the only difference. So you say that there's three steps to career management. What are those? First of all, you have to get your goals out of your head and onto a list. If you, if you don't do that, you're going absolutely nowhere fast. The second thing you do is you need to take a look at all of your marketing tools like resume, bio, social media profiles, please, everyone, email signatures, voicemail signatures, visuals that represent what you do. All of those marketing tools are really necessary to have at the ready during job search. And then the third step is simply going into job search, which I break into two distinct categories, research and strategy. Those are the three steps, goals, marketing tools, job search. Now, you say, this is interesting to me, you say that you should schedule your goals. What does that look like? Well, it looks a little obsessive on this end of the table, but um, uh, what you need to do is uh, you make up a list of goals. Let's say you make 12 statements of things that you want. You go through them when you've got them all written down or drafted and you say, okay, this one's midterm, this one's long-term, this one's more sort of right now, this has got to get done. And then for also for each goal, you go through and you itemize and you say to yourself, you know, scale of one to 10, how important is this goal to me? So then you end up with a small chart, short, mid, and long-term, and all of your items in each section are prioritized by the weight that you've given them. So then you can take that list. I post mine over top my computer. I look at it every day of my life, and I look, I check it every morning, and I say, okay, what on this list needs to be advanced this week? And I throw it into some good spots in my calendar for the week where I know I shouldn't be doing business development activities or, or other things I might be up to. And then I systematically do my goals in bite-sized chunks and they get done. So what about people listening right now though who are thinking, well, I don't really want to leave the company per se, but perhaps I would like to move up somehow or even to a different department, you know, uh, horizontally as opposed to vertically. Uh, does your, does your advice help them as well? Oh, without a doubt. <clears throat> and I would say, first of all, congratulations. 
whoever is attempting that, on thinking of it in the first place, because so many people get into jobs and they get locked into this kind of socialized perspective where they're safe, they shouldn't move, and and they stay in the one thing. I've known people who've stayed in the one thing for 20 years, you know? Um, so it is perfectly possible to advance within an organization. All it takes is some mindful strategy, understanding your goals. Your goals are your positioning. How do you want to position yourself? I want to move from mid-management to senior management because I now have 10 years in the industry. So your goals to position yourself, your marketing tools to package yourself, and then you start having the conversations. If you do that level of preparation and you're organized around your goals and you have a small plan for yourself, why would your employer not take you seriously? I want to go back to what you were talking about, about having marketing tools, because I think a lot of people might hear that and think, well, I'm not a product. I mean, there might be some discomfort in and around that feeling, I suppose, of marketing yourself. When you see tools, what kind of tools are you talking about? Everyone always feels, at least in the beginning of their careers or mid-career, that it is a job where it, it's something where, whereby you have to, quote unquote, sell yourself. You are not selling yourself. You are selling your products or your services. You're selling your craft or your knowledge. There is no shame in making your employment uh, uh, environ, uh, environs uh, aware of what your capabilities are and what you're bringing to the marketplace. There is no shame in, in that. In fact, you ought to take a lot of pride in being able to articulate it. And the reason you can articulate it is because you've written up your goals. I love that. I love the uh, how you framed that. That's that's amazing. Um, so, but those tools, though, specifically, like, do people need fancy headshots? Uh, is, is there an investment of money that has to come, or can they do this on their own? Oh yes, please. Everyone, one of the biggest mistakes with careers that people make is that they don't invest in themselves, and that means both time and money. Marketing tools cost money. You want to have them done professionally. They need to deliver the right image. Um, uh, and we're not talking like, you know, bogus image here. We're talking about the values image and the expertise image. You want to be able to convey that. You have to make sure that whatever copy you're using to describe yourself resonates with the user or, or with, a, with, a, with a reader. And so, you know, you, you need to go through these, um, these steps and have these things available for that magical day when someone calls you and says, have you got something you could send me? And it's like, yes, I sure do. I've got all kinds of things I can send you. Let's figure out what's most applicable. So marketing tools are critical. They could be samples of work. They could be um, a, a shot of you at a conference head table, uh, maybe doing panelist work in a room with a committee, uh, in situation, in production, or on the job, or a nice group photo at a party, anything that helps represent and package you in the way that you feel will be the most accurate and informative for would-be employers. But I'd like to move on to strategy. But before we do it, I have a question. Do you have thoughts on so your social media profiles? Should you clean those up? Do employers go look at people's social media profiles? Employers are now going first to social media profiles. 
And if they like what they see and if it passes muster, they'll then move on to an on-paper screening. So yes, those are, you know, those are critical uh, to the process. That's good to know. It's a, it's a new world. All right, let's talk about the strategy then. So we want to go out, we've got our marketing tools in place and we're ready to go and start looking for a new place to spread our wings. What's our first step? Okay, job search, in my humble opinion, splits into two distinct categories. One is job search research, that comes first, and then we work on the job search strategy. So the research is basically, for me, a giant Excel spreadsheet. Sorry, it's very unsexy, but it is evergreen. Um, and um, I park all of my business development in there in al alphabetical order by company that I want to pursue business with. I would do the same if I was looking for a staff job. I then will go in and research their website and I'll grab a couple quick notes on their mandates, any awards, anything notable that they've done. I'll then go into LinkedIn. I'll have a look at who is on the team that I want to join. What department do I need to go to to further business? So I'll look at who's on that team and I'll make ready notes of their full names and full titles so I have a good picture. Then I'm going to sit down in fourth column and I'm going to say, okay, why would they hire me? Why would they hire me now? What role is it that I want to play for them? Or why am I applying for this role in particular? And then why do I want to join this company? You tie everything up with why do I want to join this company? Because it is about the employer at the end of the day, not you. If you have done that 10 minutes worth of research, when the day when that magical day comes and your phone rings and it's the employer of your dreams, you pull up your spreadsheet, you've got a full picture of the company right there, and you are poised and confident in your knowledge. And that is what they're looking for. Well, you are certainly poised and confident in your knowledge, Michelle. I want people to be able to connect with you and find out more. And 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 really, your book is amazing. Um, I've had the opportunity to go through it myself. So can you tell people where they can find you? Uh, yes, by all means. Thank you. Um, Careers AF second edition, the red copy, uh, is the one that has been updated to post-pandemic best practices. You can uh, resource it through my website, mediaintelligence.ca. Or uh, it's available for purchase in three different formats on Amazon, uh, paperback, hardback, and um, the electronic book is there, uh, is available there as well. And we also have an accompanying uh, career toolkit that goes with the book that helps you work through the various exercises around resume, cover letters, writing your bio, etc. So it's a nice, neat little package that can help you do it, do it yourself. All right. Incredible. Thank you so much for joining me today, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Best of luck to everyone out there. It's going to be a very strong job market this January. Take heart. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Think about your Facebook friends. Now think about how connected you are to them, really. 
So often we mindlessly scroll, hit a few emojis, and then promptly forget what people have shared. My next guest recognized this too and learned that the true connection to those we know online really happens when we move the interactions offline. Amy Daughter's life was changed in a profound way when she reconnected with an old friend from camp, Dana, via Facebook. When Amy learned that Dana's son Parker was battling cancer, she felt called to do something more than just offer words of condolence. She began writing handwritten letters to Dana, and even after Parker passed away, the two women continued to correspond through the mail. This rich, meaningful experience led Amy to write handwritten letters to all of her Facebook friends. And as it turns out, they were real, extraordinary individuals living very real lives behind each social media profile. She joins me now to discuss. Welcome to What She Said, Amy. Thank you, Candice. Glad to be on. I, I love this whole premise. How many letters did you write? Beside the letters from Dana, I wrote 580 handwritten letters. I had to, out of curiosity, just go see how many friends, and I put this in air quotes, friends I have on uh, Facebook. I have 979. I couldn't imagine. Um, But you say the effort into this was well worth it. Can you expand? Yes. You know, I think that, well, first of all, I didn't have a lot of intention. The story just kind of happened to me. I, you know, I think the premise is if, if you send someone a heartfelt letter or a note, that that person is going to be the ben- you know, person who benefits from the transaction. What I found out over and over again, really, the person who benefited the most from this entire process was me, because I realized over and over again that I was connected to all these amazing people who, who loved me or liked me or remembered me in some level. And just my heart expanded, expanded, expanded to really, at the end, I thought, my heart was going to explode, literally. So I think this probably goes back to the whole concept of it's better to give than receive. Uh, it's much better for us when we're giving. Uh, were you surprised, though, by any of the interactions you had, aside from Dana, obviously, which was, was a profound one? Was there anybody else that sort of popped up and surprised you that you maybe didn't know as well prior to writing that letter? Right. There was. I had so many surprises, um, you know, from... The person that if you think about your own, I think this is so relatable because you said you have 900 and something friends. If you think the people you would write a letter to that you would never hear back from, those were the people who are going to write you back. And they're going to do it in a meaningful way that just, it just blew my mind. And then there were all the assumptions I made about people, the people with the perfect life, who you, you were sure they were doing it better than you. And then when you reach out to someone in writing in this age of social media, People shared with me over and over again these intimate details of their life. And it turned out that their life was just as real as my life was, only just as they didn't see me for who I really was, I didn't see them as well. And it it was so profound that now, I always said when I got done with the Facebook project that I was going to get off of Facebook, but you know what? I can't do that because I am profoundly connected to all 580 people. I have a lot more friends on Facebook than that now, but... The, the, the connection, once you make that connection, it's almost like an in-person connection. You take the digital out and people become flesh and, bu- and bone and over and over again. It was profound 580 times, I would say. I look at my Facebook friend list and I will admit there are a few people there that I think, how do I know you? Right. Did, do, do you have awkward moments like that? Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, it, it was it, it, it was from people who I completely assumed like, oh, that's from, that person's from high school. 
And then the first thing I would do before I wrote the letter is I would go, some call it stalking, Candace, but, you know, I did a deeper dive and I would look at their pictures and I would look at their about me page. And I was like, wait a second. She's not from high school. She's my camp friend's friend who I met in a bathroom at a wedding. You know, oh, that's who she is. <laughs> and then was like, again, making the person real over and over again, because I had to stop and consider them, not because I'm a great person, but because I got inspired to write all these letters. And once I got into it, I realized that my life was going to be changed and, you know, momentum builds. But there were so many awkward moments. And then there were the, like, you know, my kids' friends or my parents' friends. And I would pull the name out of the box and I'd be like, oh, my God, I'm really going to write this person a letter. But again, those transactions, the awkward ones, seem to, I think because I wasn't expecting it, seem to be even more beneficial than, you know, like my BFF that knew, knew they were getting a letter from me. As you continued on this journey, did you maintain that letter writing with, with people back and forth? Like, I'm curious how many people you still maintain this back and forth with? Well, that's a great question because one of the big takeaways for me and this sounds so obvious, but, you know, I, I mentioned that so many people shared with me uh, intimate details of their life. What I realized is that, you know, I couldn't be the friend to these people that they needed as they were sharing these things, you know, because, you know, I would share back and maybe go back and forth two or three letters. We're still in contact electronically. But I just it got to the point with 580 real human beings involved. that I just could not keep up. And so I realized that the important lesson in that was because I walked away feeling guilty a lot about some of the interactions because I just I just couldn't keep up. And some people, just like you and I, had real issues and real challenges in their life, but there was no way. So I realized that the takeaway for me was, you know, I've got to take care of my five to 10 people or whatever your number is. I refer to it in the book. It's like a sleep number bed. You know, we all can facilitate a certain number of friends. So really, if I take care of my people and you take care of your people and all of these people get taken care of by someone, then we're all taking care of each other. And it's so important. I realize that I've got to be really deliberate with the people who are that I'm actually in my little small circle of friends. All right, Amy. Well, I'm on my way over to send you a friend request on Facebook as soon as we wrap up this interview. But I want people to be able to find your book and keep up with you. So where are the best places for that? Well, you can buy the book anywhere. Books are sold. You can request, you know, if you're a small bookstore person like I am, you can go in and request a book. They can order it. You can go to Amazon. You can go to Barnes & Noble. Any bookseller has the book available. If you want to learn more about me, my website, amydaughters.com. I have an author page on Facebook. I'd love to connect with you. One of the best things about this, I've connected with so many people about their letter writing connection stories. So my email's on my website. I'd love to hear from you. Incredible. Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. I can't tell you how big of a smile I have on my face talking to you. This is such a joyful story. Well, thanks for letting me share it. I, I really appreciate it. Y'all have a great day. the rest of us were relaxing over the holidays, I know one person who was continuing to work tirelessly, keeping us up to date on all that's new in entertainment. And she's back. Welcome back, Anne. Thank you. Happy New Year to you. I am so excited about today's segment because we're opening with an icon. Can we talk about Otto? This looks so good. 
I love Tom Hanks. He's one of the kindest people in interviews. He's funny and, and edgy and just kind. So he, play, he goes against type in A Man Called Otto. He plays a widower who's bitter and fussy, and he lives in a little uh, neighborhood enclave, and he's always telling people what they're doing wrong. So he has, he has kind of a bad rep. And then out of the blue, newcomers come in, which is a rarity because uh, no one's moved in or out for decades. So it's uh, an immigrant family from Mexico. And the woman just, what my mother would say, mithers him and mithers him. That is, goes after him to make him be friendlier and nicer. And they become really, really close. Meanwhile, there's a real estate uh, development company that is threatening to overtake the place, kick them all out. And some of the people are ill and they need to be in their home. And there's all kinds of stories going on. Um, and he doesn't win any fans, but he comes alive with this new family. It's the most lovely thing. It, it's like he's, his soul has finally opened. Um, and I just... All, and also, it's, it's kind of a beautiful movie. And his wife, Rita Wilson, sings the song over the, the closing credit reel. And it's gorgeous. Oh, my God. I hadn't heard her sing before, but she's really good. I really like Rita Wilson. I mean, we're going to go off script here a little bit and just say that I watched 18, uh, 1883 over the holidays, uh, you know, sort of the, the pre-story to Yellowstone. And Rita Wilson and Tom Hanks had cameos in it. <laughs> and she was so great uh, in her small little role that she had. Um, yeah. I really think we need more Rita Wilson in our life. She's a great actress. So, yes, I, um, I agree. So I'm looking forward to A Man Called Otto. When is that out? It's in theaters uh, now. Excellent. All right. Um, tell me about Hold Me Tight. This is such a challenging oh. film. It's French and it stars one of the great actresses of in recent years, Vicky Crepes, who's from Luxembourg. So she plays a woman who uh, is married with two children and she's very uncomfortable. Her daughter's constantly playing piano and, and it cuts to a scene where she's beating up a pile of photos of her family and packing up and leaving in the middle of the night. And we're thinking, oh, wow, this is strong. Um, so we follow her. She takes sort of a drunken drive through Europe and has all these misadventures. And it, it, it goes back and forth, but we don't know that until the end. So, and then she's in the mountains in Switzerland and they've, they've exhumed three bodies. And I mean, I can't really tell you anymore. It's such a psychological thriller and a twist. It's chaotic, but at the end you understand, oh my God, what a trip. So if you have any chance to see it, it's at Tiff Bell Lightbox now and expanding later. Hold Me Tight is something to go for if you really want to be challenged. I'm going to skip around the next one. I'm going to go a little bit off of what we had planned to go and go right to the case against Cosby for a second because oh, yeah. this one is so important, I think. It really is a perfect example of speaking truth to power, uh, you know, and having the determination and will to do so against all odds. So let's talk about um, Andrea Constant, please. She's been a hero since she came forward about Bill Cosby. Uh, there was, a comedian actually outed him during a routine that someone happened to film. And that was more or less the beginning of the uh, reputational end for America's dad. Um, he talked about uh, drugging and raping women. 
he'd actually mentioned it back in the black and white TV days. And, and uh, the filmmaker got a hold of that clip. And it's just astonishing. Now, Andrea Consett sued him, charged him. He went to jail and he was released because he had a friend, a judge, who understood his, uh, Cosby's power in the city of Philadelphia. And so he's out again. And dozens more cases against him have all gone nowhere. Andrea from, from here is uh, the only one to succeed in getting him any jail time. Her story is horrific. We follow her through her memories of what happened. We talk to her mother, who I love. She's fierce. She just, she phoned Bill Cosby and confronted him. Um, and, uh, and he said, but she had an orgasm. She liked it. She didn't like it. And that was his defense. Um, and then we see her in a kind of a group therapy retreat in BC. So we followed her through her journey. She now lives remotely out in the country somewhere. I don't know, up north. Um, but she's so intelligent and smart. She's got such a good grasp on it now. And uh, my interview with her is on the site. Um, so with her and with the filmmaker, Karen Wookie. So this is must-see material on CBC and CBC Gem Janney. All right. Uh, I will definitely be tuning in to that one. Uh, Anne, thank you so much. Uh, and thank you for continuing to, uh, you know, weed through all of these shows for us <laughs> so we know the best of the best every week. Uh, we'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Women over 50 are having a moment. That's right. Ladies who are 50 and up are breaking stereotypes and proving that age is just a number. From starting businesses and pursuing new careers to leading social movements and making a positive impact on their communities, these women are making their mark and showing that age is just a state of mind. Sherilyn Starkey is an award-winning digital communications consultant with more than 20 years' experience working with private and public sector clients in Canada, Britain, and the USA. Her new podcast, 50 Women Over 50, is a passion project in which she is interviewing women past their 50th birthday to learn how they see the world, what lessons they've learned, and what advice they have for us all. She joins me now to discuss. Welcome to the show, Sherry Lynn. Hi, Candice. So you said, you know, you're interviewing women past their 50th birthday, and there's this sort of common misconception that women over 50 are past their prime. What would you say to that? Well, I think we beg to differ on that. That's one thing I've seen for sure. It's it's a, a newer project for me. I'm uh, my goal is to do 50 interviews. I've done 14 of them, and one thing one theme that I'm seeing come through very strongly is women do not believe that they're past their prime just because they've hit that milestone birthday. Yeah, and I don't know if it's because I've hit this magical age of over 50 now, and you know I have frequency illusion, but I really do think there's been a shift 
in our collective consciousness when it comes to aging. I'm, you know, I'm not seeing a lot of those stereotypical uh, older women anymore. Yeah, I think, you know, being 50 today is not like being 50 when our mothers reached this milestone. We're a lot busier. We're, we're working. We're working in our communities. We're very hands-on with our children and our grandchildren. I mean, some of the women that I have interviewed still have under 10s at home. Some of them have empty nests and they're looking after their grandchildren. A lot of us have responsibilities and looking for our elders. Um, we are still in, in the thrust of uh, the main part of our career. So we are really, really busy. So do you think that we're having a moment because there's so many of us right now? I just think that it's as Gen X is coming into this uh, dem this decade, like we're not like any women that have come before us in this, right? Like we uh, kind of grew up on different terms and we've always been independent and vocal and advocated for ourselves and, uh, you know... I, some would argue that we were the first um, cohort of real feminists, real working women, real women who wanted to have it all and went out and took it. And, you know, we're not going to change just because we've reached a birthday. I have to laugh because uh, this, I live in this small community and there's a newsletter they put out every month. And in it, there's this group called the Nifty 50, I can't even say it, the Nifty 50 Senior Club. Which makes me laugh every time I push back on it so hard because I don't identify as a senior. Um, so, you know, is that what you're getting with these women you're talking to? Yeah, that's come up in a couple of the interviews where women have been offered uh, like the seniors discount at Shoppers or one of those stores and how that made them feel like we, we don't feel like uh, like we're uh, senior citizens, but we're not averse to taking a discount if we're offered one. <laughs> You've done 14 out of 50 interviews. Is there a common thread you're finding now as you're starting to do more and more of these? Yeah, there's a couple of main themes. I think one, the overriding theme, 100%, is that women in our cohort are not prepared to put up with any ridiculousness. As uh, the very first interviewee, Anna Epp, she's a professional photographer, she said she's not prepared to put up with any ridiculousness. And that was my first interview. And I've seen that sentiment expressed in every single subsequent interview. Women are, this is me time. I am not making sacrifices anymore. This time is for me. I want to do what I want to do. And I'm putting myself first. Oh, wow. I feel that in a big way. What about retirement? Has there been uh, conversations around that? Have people's attitudes towards retirement shifted? I think that retirement for our cohort is going to look much, much different than it has for previous cohorts. With one or two exceptions, most of us have no plans to retire fully. Uh, without exception, all of us want to get out of the snow and cold and go somewhere warm and work remotely. Um, <laughs> and that, that's a, that was a very common theme. Uh, some women, they want to uh, maybe change what they're doing. There's an uh, interview that I have out today with a woman who decided to totally change track. She went back and got uh, her master's in fine arts, and she's changed into, she's a university lecturer and a novelist now, where before she was a bureaucrat in, in the UN. I think this is such a great uh, podcast, and I love it. But, you know, women are, women over 50, we're all speaking with ourselves. We generally agree with each other. 
I think there's a lot of wisdom to be gleaned from this group, though, for the generations coming up behind us. Do you find you're getting listeners from younger cohorts listening to older women sort of express the wisdom they've 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 caught over the years? Yeah, and I'm seeing that in the analytics. Like I can see that in the downloads of the podcast that we're I have a very strong following in the uh, in the 40 year old demographic. So yes, definitely most of my listeners are women over the age of 50. But uh, definitely a very strong subgroup is women in their 40s. And I think that they're, you know, they're, they're facing the milestone and they want to know what it's going to be like when they, when they cross over. Well, you know, when I think back on me coming up through the 30s and, and my 40s, there was nobody really up ahead of me leading the charge. Uh, you know, there were some famous people, obviously, and, and, and icons that I could look to. But not really sort of in the community that I, I think I identified with. So I think this is such an important conversation to have. So who's coming up on your show that you're really excited to talk to? Okay, well, this week, uh, we've got uh, Martina Clark. She is uh, in the oldest cohort of people living with HIV. She was diagnosed at 29. She was given a, a death sentence. They told her she had five years at the most to live. Now she's She's 58. She's transformed her life. She's a novelist. And we had such an interesting conversation. Next week, I've got Ann Bell coming on, and she's a sex therapist because, hey, I wanted to talk about sex after 50. So, and she is full of great practical tips <laughs> and insights. And uh, I've also got a, a woman from the States who um, was widowed in her early 50s. And uh, that's coming up very soon. Um, she's going to talk about how that changed her life and, and uh, kind of changed the whole trajectory of her future. I talk to women all the time on the show, obviously, and I feel so much wiser and smarter for it. I always, you know, learn such great things. Has there been something that you've come across that you thought, oh, wow, I wish I'd known that earlier? Well, one of the questions that I ask every single woman is, uh, what advice would you give to your 30-year-old self? And so what I'm seeing is a range of answers there, but mostly it has to do with you know, don't be so hard on yourself. You've got time. You can do this. You know, have confidence in yourself. And uh, I guess the message I'm taking away from that is that we need to mentor and coach our, our younger cohorts and, and, and help them get through that tumultuous, you know, 30s and early 40s when you're running around crazy with toddlers and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think that's a big lesson that I've learned. Yeah, I think if I, if I was talking to my 30-year-old self, I'd say stop you know, beating yourself up on every photograph taken of you, because I'm telling you, now I look back, I remember, you know, I'll look at a picture when I'm 30 and go, I remember thinking at the time, oh, I look terrible, blah, blah, blah. Now that I'm, you know, on the other side of 50, I'll look back at a picture of me at 30 and think, I look great. <laughs> why, yeah. why was I so hard on myself? And so I imagine now I, now I say, when I'm 70, I'm going to look back on pictures of myself at this time and go, I looked pretty good. So uh, Sherry Lynn, I can't thank you enough for this. I'm so glad you're doing this. Uh, can you let people know where they can find you and keep up with all of your podcasts? So the podcast is called 50 Women Over 50, and you can get it on Apple or Google Podcasts or Spotify or any of any podcast app that you use. Um, and to find me, uh, just Google Sherry Lynn. I got a pretty big digital footprint and uh, you'll find me at the top of the Google listing for my name. Well, I encourage all women over 50 to go find it, but I also encourage all women under 50 to go find this. This is your handbook, <laughs> ladies, for when you get to this age. Uh, Sherry Lynn, thanks so much for joining me today. And thanks for having me. I promise I'll be fine. I've had some trauma. <laughs>
Many people are worried about the impact that chatbots like ChatGPT might have on the writing industry. With the ability to generate coherent and convincing text, chatbots like GPT are starting to take on tasks that were once the exclusive domain of human writers. But as with any new technology, there are concerns about the potential for job displacement. Kate Wallace is a copywriter, scriptwriter, and brand storytelling consultant. Her custom copy helps her clients capture the attention of target audiences and drive business impacts. A national award-winning journalist, Kate joins me now to share her thoughts on the latest development in artificial intelligence. Welcome to What She Said, Kate. Hi, Candace. Thanks so much for having me today. I don't know how you felt when ChatGPT first sort of popped onto the scene earlier in December, but I was blown away by it. What were your initial thoughts? I'm a bit of an analog person in general. Like I like, uh, you know, listening to records. I love notebooks. So a lot of times the digital stories, I don't get too worked up about them, but this one definitely caught my eye. And as that sort of flurry of attention around it grew, I actually started to get really worried about my industry and even uh, wondering about, you know, am I going to have a job in five years? And and have you played with it, with the actual platform itself? Have you jumped in and tried to, to write things or have it write things? Yes, I have. Um, I've been dabbling. I've used ChatGPT. Well, I had a little fun with it, actually. Uh, I had it write a list of the limitations of ChatGPT just to see what it would come up with. Um, and I have to admit, that list was very good. But it also shed a light on some of the things that I was quickly realizing when the when it first launched and there was all the hubbub around it. When I took a moment and, and sat back and thought about it, I realized, well, now, wait a second. My day-to-day life, um, the work that I do for clients um, in a range of sectors and, and you know, all, all kinds of content and copy that I'm writing for them, could I actually use this for my work? And quickly realized, well, no, I couldn't. Um, chat GPT and other AI writing tools, they rely on text, uh, and inputs that already exist. And the bulk of my work is about creating original new content. Um, and for anyone who writes, I think this should be, you know, almost always our goal is you're creating something that doesn't yet exist for so much of my work is doing what you're you and I are doing now which is having a conversation it's based on interview it's based on discovering things that haven't actually been put out on the internet in text blog posts or or stories yet um so I I as much as I had that original panic I was kind of quickly reassured that I think there's still um a huge value perhaps an even greater value in uh, that unique, original, kind of handmade, human-based writing. Do you see ChatGPT being used as more of a personal assistant then for writers? Totally. Like, I've been talking to some writer friends and just other colleagues who do a lot of writing in their business, but they might not, you know, writing might not be their primary mainstay of their jobs. And people are using it in all kinds of interesting ways. Um, 
even writers sometimes get blocked. I think just some if you're having a trouble finding a headline or uh, how to start something like I think throwing that into chat GPT and seeing what comes back, it, even as a writing prompt for yourself could be useful. Um, I have a friend who uses it to run his ugly first drafts through and kind of more as a copy editing tool, which I thought was a really interesting application. Like I use Grammarly. We, you know, a lot of us are using AI tools already and might not even think of them as such. Um, I think if you're writing about a topic on which a lot has already been said, then ChatGPT is going to be a potentially useful research tool. But then I think we also have to question, well, why am I writing something that is so, has been covered so extensively? Like, how can I make this um, my own? How can I bring my own experiences and stories and those specific telling details and insights that ChatGPT just doesn't have access to? Again, it's, it's so limited by the inputs that are out, out there already. I agree with you. And I think, you know, what it lacks is obviously personality. <laughs> um, but I have to tell you, I mean, I've been playing with it now for a few weeks and I see it already sort of developing a little bit of a personality. Now, I don't know if it's if it's adapting to what I'm inputting and responding accordingly, or if it's just broadly sort of adapting with all of the information because it quickly skyrocketed to over a million users uh, very quickly. <laughs> it did. But, you know, even I was taking a look at some of your blog posts and there's such a strong Candace voice. Like there's certain and there's the, just those telling references that um, I don't think AI can replicate. I mean, maybe someday, but we're not there yet. Um, yeah, I agree. As I think, like for women's stories, it's really important that we are validated in, in continuing to share stories and not feel defeated by chat GPT and, and other AI writing tools. Yeah, make it work for you and not the other way around. Um, yeah. <laughs> Kate, it, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I think you've probably calmed a lot of people out there who are quite nervous about this. Um, I want people to be able to keep up with you, though, and connect with you. Where can they do that? Sure. Um, my website is katewallace.ca. I blog about writing, and I know I'm going to be writing about uh, AI on there as well. So um, that's the best place to find me. Incredible. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Candace. It's been fun. Waiting for a when I was young, I would look in the mirror. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 1059 The Region. We're kicking off our first conversation this year with What She Said's expert on the parent-teen relationship, Allie Payne, with a topic that is important to many families, how to best support and motivate teens who are struggling academically. 
It's natural for parents and guardians to want their teens to succeed in school, and grades can be an important measure of progress. But sometimes, despite our best efforts, teens may struggle with their grades. When this happens, it's easy to feel frustrated and want to punish or reprimand them in some way. But Allie says, nah, uh, uh, not so fast. Welcome, Allie. Let's talk about it. Thanks, Candice. Yeah, this is a hot button for so many parents. Every video I post, every blog I post about this just gets um, so much um, kind of frustration from parents because let's face it, we're not taught this. And so we're doing the very best we can. So I just want to say that to all the parents listening. I know you're doing the best you can. Let's make 2023 the year that we stop asking your teen, how was school? How'd you do on that test? How'd you do on that exam? Did you? Let's make this the year we just stop asking. Now, I did not say don't care. That's not what I just said. There's a difference between not asking and not caring. The asking is a reflection of how you and I were raised, which is very performance based, where we needed to earn our worth and our approval of our parents to be lovable. And we needed to do that via things like sports, academics, etc. So it is normal for us as parents in our generation to be repeating this. Unfortunately, it's very harmful. When children hear you ask them on a daily basis, particularly if they're struggling, how did you do on that exam? How did you do on that quiz? Did you study for that? Did you get your assignment in? Did you hand that in? What your teenager hears is, you don't care about me. You don't love me. You don't see me. What you want is for me to make you look good. What you want is for me to do in a way where you feel good about you and your parenting. And unfortunately, and I know this is not what you mean, but they are already struggling because the teenage years are just a giant hot mess anyway in their developing brain. That is not about intelligence. Um, And so when they don't feel seen and they feel constantly Um, it's reinforced. So the school system as a whole is set up via negative reinforcement. You either perform or in some version, you get shamed or punished or you're sent for extra. It's getting better, but but the school system is performance-based. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. But when we're grounding our children for not performing, what we're, again, is reinforcing that negativity. I just did a little bit of research on this, so I just want to just jump this in here. So what happens when your teenager feels like they can't meet your expectations of performance, let alone their own, and they do have expectations of themselves, and they're struggling for whatever reason, a subject got hard, all of a sudden they don't get it, even if they did it before, maybe they do well at all the other subjects, but they struggle with this one performance-based school system, let alone you asking consistently the obsessiveness around performance-based is increasing anxiety. It is lowering confidence because nowhere is someone coming along beside them and saying, it's okay if you got an F in that. Let's have a look at how you're doing. How, how are you feeling? How are instead, we, we don't do that. So I did some research on this and What happens over time with this negative reinforcement, which includes parents consistently asking how they're doing at school relentlessly, is children, their confidence gets low enough that they stop trying, which is, of course, apathy. And apathy is a survival coping technique, by the way. 
and it's based in hopelessness. Now, hopelessness was studied in 1989, not helplessness, hopelessness. And this theory is that repeated exposure to adverse environmental, like negative reinforcement, it enforces this belief that they are incapable and that they build hopelessness and they start to make everything personal, that it is them who, who sucks, who they personally lack are inherently less than. They make up that um, there's, they project it into the future. I'll always be stupid. There's never anything I can do. You're never gonna love me. And then they have a greater likelihood of developing um, depression. Um, they interpret this as a poor interpersonal, again, very internalized, and that there's nothing they can ever do about it. And that's the definition of hopelessness. And that's what I'm seeing happen in schools with teens. You know, it's funny having these conversations with you. I'm always sort of alerted to my own uh experience growing up and also what I've carried on with me and it's breaking these things that is so important yes it's breaking these generational yes. parenting tools that we that have passed down so this is a good one because uh, of course I've been guilty of it you know punishing my teen taking their phone away if their grades aren't perfect or things like that uh, and right, I can right. tell you it doesn't work <laughs> so let me be yeah. your case study it does well, not work uh, but um, you always have great advice and I really want people to keep up with this with you this year we're going to be doing this monthly we're going to be having these conversations about parents and teens because we want these relationships to be stronger and better and obviously we want our young people to succeed so uh in the meantime until mm -hmm. next month Allie I want people to keep up with you where can they do that uh, my website AllyPayne.com or TikTok and Instagram at AllyPayne and I'm going to get you those TikToks and articles to post on your show page so they know what they can do to turn this around perfect we're going to throw them up on what she said talk.com thanks so much Allie Thank you. That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Please hold on Don't to the memory. come a stranger to you. I could recognize I hold on to you. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.